Well, back in the uh, early 90s, so for you guys here, you'll definitely not know that, the youngsters, but uh, a company that made suits was called CNR Clothes, uh, and they had this commercial that pretty much ran for at least a year. Uh, the com- commercial would start with the man like in his workout clothes or in some fireman's suit or some doctor scrubs, and uh, it would have a picture of him sitting there, and all of a sudden the, the theme song would come on, what a difference a day makes. Anyone ringing the bells? 24 little hours, maybe not. Right after that, it would show him in a suit. Uh, and so, you know, this transformation would happen and he would look a lot better. Uh, am I the only one who remembers that commercial? I think I remember it more because every time it came on, my sister, who's two years older, would run in there because they're all male models who did this and she thought that was the greatest commercial ever. But the message of those commercials was if you get one of our suits, This is going to make a great difference in your life. You're going to be so much better because of it. And a lot of people bought those suits trusting, hey, this suit, I put this on. What a great difference it's going to make. And uh, my life's going to be so much better. And, you know, I think the reality is everyone's looking for something or for someone to make a great difference in their life. They're looking to put their trust in something, put their trust in someone that's going to make that great difference in their life. Now, they're not looking for something just to make any old difference because there's a lot of differences that are negative. They want that positive difference. They want a good difference. And so they're searching for that. You know, they look to, um, you know, people, relationships, jobs, family, money, some suits. Uh, but, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that people are looking to to make that great difference in their life. But the greatest and best difference maker anyone could ever put their trust in is Jesus Christ. There's no greater difference maker than Him. When you put your trust in Jesus, He is the ultimate difference maker. He can do more to change your life. He can do more to bring peace to your life, goodness to your life, than anyone ever could. Here in Luke chapter 5, we've now gotten to the fifth chapter. We're going to encounter four individuals. And with each one of these individuals, Jesus is going to come and encounter them, and he's going to ask these individuals to place their trust in him in the situation that they face. And so we're going to see four different people, four different circumstances, and with each time, Jesus is going to say, will you trust me with the circumstance that you're in? Will you place your trust in me and what you're going through? And as we see them respond with trusting Jesus, what a difference he makes in their life. Now this morning we're going to look at the first two individuals. We're going to see Simon Peter, who we're probably very familiar with if you've ever read through the Gospels. And we're also going to see a man who's full of leprosy. And then next week we'll look at the other two individuals that Jesus encounters and the great difference he makes in their life. And so let's start here, chapter 5, verse 1, and see what we can learn. It says this, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put it out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, last chapter, we were told that Jesus was teaching, that he was healing, that people were just flocking to him. Uh, The entire region heard about him. And so at this point in time, up in the region of Galilee, Jesus is quite popular and people are wanting to hear the word of God. And we're told here by Luke that that this took place uh, at the lake of Gennesaret. 
Now you think in the lake of Gennesaret, that doesn't sound familiar in the Bible. That is another term for the Sea of Galilee, another term in the Bible that we see is the Sea of Tiberias. Now you're thinking, well, why the other names? Why not just always refer to it as the Sea of Galilee? Well, if you look at our map up here on the wall, you'll see that, you know, the Sea of Galilee was quite large. Uh, and along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee were these different cities. Capernaum, we already saw Jesus was there. But below that is Gennesaret. Below that is Tiberias. And so instead of saying the Sea of Galilee, people would get more specific and say, you know, the Lake of Gennesaret or Tiberias. They were specifically focusing on a specific shoreline uh, instead of referring to the sea as a whole, wanting to be more specific about exactly where this was taking place. And so when Luke refers to this, instead of just saying, hey, this happened in the Sea of Galilee, which there's all sorts of different towns around it, he gets more specific in saying, actually, this took place there in Gennesaret. Now, if you ever go to Israel, you will find that uh, everything is a lot closer than you probably would have thought. But Gennesaret and Capernaum, which Jesus was just at, is really, I took this picture uh, up on this mountain when I was in Israel, uh, and as you can see, there's only a mile and a half distance between those two cities which, or towns, which are both located right there on the Sea of Galilee. And, and I think it's important to kind of picture this, because remember, last chapter we end, Jesus is in Capernaum, there's a huge crowd of people that bring sick people, demon-possessed people, and we're told that all night long, Jesus heals every single person that's brought to him and he's there in Capernaum. In the early morning before it even gets light out, Jesus goes to a solitary place alone and he prays. And those at Capernaum, when they get up in the morning, they realize, where's Jesus? So they go find him and they try to keep him in Capernaum. Hey, here's the man who heals all our people. We don't want him to leave. And Jesus tells them, I have been called not only to preach here, but to other cities also. And so he leaves and he makes his way just a little bit down the Sea of Galilee to the next town, which is Gennesaret. And that's where we have the start of chapter 5 and what is going on here. And so this big crowd, I'm sure from you know, not a very long journey from Capernaum, probably follow. There's another crowd there in Gennesaret waiting. They've all heard about Jesus' power to heal, to teach. They're wanting to hear him teach. And so as Jesus gets to the shoreline of Gennesaret, he's swarmed with people and he sees these two fishing boats there right on the shore. And most likely, you know, here's a picture of what those fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee would have looked like. They would have been smaller boats. And, and as Jesus sees these boats, I'm sure the, the crowd's kind of pushing there onto the sand. And so he gets into one of them. We find that it's Simon Peter's boat. Uh, and he asks Simon to push the boat out a little bit into the water. And there Jesus kind of uses that boat as his pulpit. So all these people are kind of pressed in real close, so he's kind of able to go out into the water a little bit, and then he starts to teach the people. And let's see what happens in verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net." Now, Jesus teaches there in that boat. We're not given the details of what he taught, but we're told that when he finished teaching, as he's sitting there in Simon Peter's boat, he asked Simon Peter to do something. He says to Simon, remembering what does Simon do for a living? He's a fisherman by trade. So this is something that he does. He says, Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
Now, when you first read this, I think it's very easy to miss the significance of what Jesus is asking Simon to do. You think, well, Simon's a fisherman. Jesus is asking Simon to go fish. What's the big deal? Well, if you know what the fishermen did back in that time and how they fished, you realize that what Jesus is asking is quite significant. And so I want to give you a little bit of insight into how they fished back in the time of Jesus there in Galilee. Now, the fishermen, we're told, were washing their nets when Jesus is telling them to do this. Now, the fishermen would wash their nets once they were all done. Uh, If you didn't wash your nets, then the nets would start to break, and obviously you would uh, ruin them. And so when they were done, the day was done, the last thing you would do is take your nets that you've been using to catch fish, and then you would wash them. So Peter, his fishing partners, they are finished. They're now getting to the point, their day's done, and now they're cleaning up after themselves, and they're about to call it a day. And I'm sure most of us know that feeling, that feeling of finally getting done, a long day's work, you're finally finished, and you get home, and you've cleaned up, you've taken your shower, especially if you have a job that you get all nasty at work, and you just want to relax, you just want to kick up your feet, have a meal, you know, the last thing you want to do is go back to work. I remember one of my very first jobs, I work in a shipping department for a golf company called Cobra Golf, and uh, I did the morning shift from 6 to 3, and so 3 o'clock comes along, I get to go home, I get home, I get a shower, you know, relax a bit, make some food, I'm sitting down watching the TV, the phone rings. I answer the phone, and it's my boss at work, and he tells me someone hasn't shown up, and can I come do the second shift, which goes from 3 to Midnight, and so I had to. I've already finished work, and now I got to go back, and I got to work. I was already in there at six in the morning, I got to work all the way to midnight. Well, a few weeks later, leave work at three, get home, get my shower, start to relax, make some food. Phone rings again. This time I check caller ID, I see it's my boss. I don't answer the phone because I know most likely he's going to ask me to come back into work and work for someone who didn't show up, and I didn't want to do that because the last thing you want to do when you've had a long day of work is go back. And so picture it, Peter, these other guys, we're told that they worked all night long, and now they're cleaning their nets. They've had a whole day's worth of work, and Jesus is ultimately telling them, go back and fish again. So right away I'm sure that there was kind of this thought of, oh, Jesus, We've been working all day. You know, that's the last thing that we want to do. But there's some other interesting things about what Jesus asked Peter to do, because Jesus says to Peter, launch out into the deep. Now, for fishermen in the Sea of Galilee, they use nets. They don't use fishing poles with hooks. They would use nets. And so the best place to catch fish was in the shallow waters, not in the deep waters. In the shallow waters, you put your net there. There's not very much for the fish to go under it, and then you can get many more. So the deep water was not the place that you would go fish. And so not only is Jesus asking Peter after he's finished work to go back and fish again, but he's telling them to do it in the deep water. But another problem that Jesus is saying is to do it right then, in the daytime. Notice that Peter and all his fishermen, they fished all night. Well, that's because that's when you fish. The best time to fish was at night because then the fish would come closer to the surface uh, and you could catch more fish. And so, you know, what Jesus is asking Peter to do here is something that would have totally gone against everything that Peter knew about fishing. Peter knows, hey, you don't fish in the daytime. You don't fish in the deep end, and you surely don't want to fish once you've cleaned up your nets and you've packed everything up. 
And so Jesus was asking Peter to do something that Peter would never normally do as a fisherman. It was the wrong time, it was the wrong depth of water, and it was definitely at a place where they wouldn't have wanted to do it having done it all night. Now I think this is a good reminder to us that oftentimes God calls us to do things in a way that we would never do them. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I'm sure you probably have if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, where He asks you to do something in your mind thinking, that is not a way in which I would ever seek to do that. He likes to call us to do things that we would never come up with in ourselves. You know, especially in those areas where we feel quite confident in. Now think, you know, Peter's a fisherman. He knows how to fish. I'm sure he's very confident in the best and most proficient way to catch fish. And now he's being asked to do something that goes very far against how you would normally fish, how you would normally do it. Uh, And so I believe God calls us to do things like this in a way that we never would do them for two main reasons. The first main reason that God wants us to do it that way is because He wants to deepen our trust and our obedience in Him. You see, the reality is when, if God says, hey, do something the way that you normally do it, do something the way that's comfortable to you, do something the way that you're used to, it's not that hard to trust him in that. Oh, yeah, God, I can do that. I got that. No problem. I'm used to that. If, if Jesus just told Peter, just go fish like you normally do, sure, no problem. You know, I might have done it all night, but I can get back out there. But telling Peter to do something very different than what he's normally used to, to do something totally against what he thinks would be the best way, that's a little bit more difficult to trust God with. That's a little bit more difficult to be obedient to God in. And I think he throws those things our way to say, will you trust me when it's not comfortable, when it's not the norm, when it's not the way that you would do it? Will you trust me because I'm the one telling you to do it? I think the second main reason God calls us to do things in a way that we would never do them is because he wants to stretch us. He wants to get us out of those comfort zones that we have in our life. He puts us in situations like that because he knows it's going to help us grow. It's going to help us grow in our obedience with him. It's going to help us grow in our trust with him because it's in a place where it's more difficult for us to have to abandon what we know to be the way that we would normally do it and say, Lord, I'm going to trust that you know better than me. Uh, And that's a great place for us to be in because if you're anything like me, oftentimes you struggle with trusting in yourself, trusting your own abilities, trusting in the way that you would do it. And when God says, go do it a different way, oftentimes that can be difficult. You know, when God first called me to plant a church in Glasgow, Scotland, I was 23 years old. I was finishing up my internship uh, at Calvary Chapel's Bible College in Austria. And so the whole time I've been in Bible College and doing this internship, I've been taught over and over again, when you plant a church, you don't go by yourself. When you plan a church, you bring a team together with different giftings, and you know they explain all the reasons for doing that. And so here I am. I feel confident God's calling me to plant this church in Glasgow, Scotland, and I have all these great people there at the Bible College to you know kind of get a good team together. And I had five people all wanting to be a part of this and thinking, all right, this is great. The leadership's great. You know, you got a team. You got yourself. Wonderful. Let's see what the Lord will do. Well, we all sought to get a visa. Normally it takes six months. I got mine in a day. No one else got a visa. We all sought to get support to move to Scotland. I got people calling me when I hadn't even told them about going to Scotland who were going to support me. Nobody else got any money at all. And so they're like, all the doors are closing except for you. And I was about the point that was like, all right, well, I need to stop. You know, I can't go because, you know, 
The wisdom of everyone is you don't go on your own. You go with the team. And right then, God just said, I've called you. I've provided for you. I've miraculously opened all the doors for you. Are you going to go or not? Well, you don't understand, God. That's not the way you do it. You don't go by yourself when you're 23 years old. You bring a team and you have all these things. And ultimately, the Lord just said, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to do it? Uh, and ultimately, after you know, kind of battling with him for a little bit, I said, all right, God, you know, I'll go. And you know, so I did. 23 by myself planted the church there in Scotland, and you know, it was just amazing all that God was able to do and teach me through that, but such a good lesson to break me out of my comfort zone, to break me out of what I thought was the best way forward, and just to trust that God knew what was best. So here we have Peter responds to Jesus' request to trust him to do something that he would never do, and his first way he responds is, Master, we have toiled all night and we caught nothing. Yeah, I'm sure Peter was probably thinking, I'm a fisherman. I spent my whole life fishing. I know when to fish. I know where to fish. I know how to fish. And trust me, this isn't the way. I won't teach you how to teach, and you don't try to tell me how to be a fisherman. I'm sure probably some of these thoughts are coming through his mind of, this is just not the way to do it. And by the way, we were out there all night long, and we didn't even catch one fish. Trust me, if we go out now at the wrong time in the wrong depth of water, we're not going to catch any fish. This is kind of a waste of time. I'm sure he was thinking that. But yet, after he says, Master, we've gone all night, and we've toiled, and we didn't catch any fish, he says something else that I think is so important for us. He says... Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though this seems to be the wrong time, even though this seems to be the wrong place, even though my nets are clean, I've called to the day, nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. Nevertheless, because you've told me to, Jesus, even though it goes against everything that I think would be the way to do it, nevertheless, at your word, because you say, I'm going to be obedient, and I'm going to go do that thing that probably I don't really want to do, don't think is going to work, but because you say it, I'm going to do it. And I think it's very important to notice the only reason why Peter does what Jesus asks is because he trusts in Jesus. It's not because the circumstances were right. Not because the circumstances seem like, okay, I can see how this will work. The only reason he's doing this is because he trusts Jesus actually in spite of what the circumstances around him say. Because the circumstances were all wrong. It was the wrong time of day. It was the wrong depth of water. The nets were all clean. They're tired. They've just done in work. They don't want to go do this again. If Peter was being led by circumstances around him, he would have definitely said, no, Jesus, <laughs> This is not what we're going to do. The circumstances clearly show this is not the way forward. The circumstances told Peter, don't waste your time by going out fishing. But Jesus says, do it. And Peter had enough trust in Jesus that he said, you know what? Regardless of what the circumstances tell me, nevertheless, because you say it, Jesus, I'm going to move forward. Because you say it, Jesus, I'm going to be obedient. You know, the problem that we often have is we're led more by our circumstances than we are by what Jesus says. I know in my life there have been so many times where the circumstances were the things that dictated what I did, that directed what I did, instead of just listening to the Word of God and being clearly directed by Him. And the unfortunate reality is too often when circumstances hit us, especially when they're difficult circumstances, we get our eyes on that. And we really can't focus on anything else. So my eyes are on this circumstance and this difficulty and it's so hard and and I'm just so consumed with this that I've taken my eyes completely off God, taken my eyes completely off what He would want and I'm just driven by what the circumstances say. 
And one of the first things that we need to do in those situations is just to take our eyes off of our circumstances, place them on Jesus, and ask Him, what do you want me to do? Even though it might go completely against what my circumstances are telling me, I want what you say, and I want to be obedient to that. You know, that's what Peter does. He saw his circumstances. Lord, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. He was aware of the circumstances, but then he looks to Jesus and he says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll go do it. I'll go let down my nets as you've told me to. I think the response that Peter gives here to Jesus' request is just a great example to us. The mistake we often make is that we're not willing to trust Jesus and do what he says. If it's not the way we would do it, if the circumstances don't seem right, our, often our response is, well, sorry, Lord, I'm not going to do that because you know, all these things aren't in line the way I'd like them to be. We've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. Or, Lord, I've tried that before, and it didn't work, so don't ask me to do it again. Or, Lord, we've prayed and we've waited long enough for you. Now we're just going to move on our own. Or, Lord, you fill in the blank. Whatever is your circumstance in your life where you just feel like, you know what, here it is, and I'm not doing what you say. I think we say things like Peter did, but we leave out the most important parts. Nevertheless, at your will, at your word, I will do it. Nevertheless, Lord, I'll give it another try. Nevertheless, Lord, I'll look to you instead of my circumstances. Nevertheless, Lord, I'll do what your word says, even though it doesn't make sense to me. When we're not willing to say, nevertheless, Lord, since you tell me I will do it, we miss out on so many great things that God wants to do in us, that God wants to do through us, the great blessings that he wants to bring in that situation that we face. You know, if you're in a situation right now where God's telling you to do something that you don't think is going to work, or maybe he's telling you to do something that's out of your comfort zone, or do something that just doesn't really fully make sense to you, maybe he's telling you to witness to someone that you don't think is going to be receptive to it, maybe he's telling you to reconcile with someone that you're convinced isn't going to want to be willing to do that, Maybe he's telling you to go somewhere or do something that's out of your comfort zone. Whatever God's speaking to you, really the question ultimately is, are you willing to trust him enough to say, even though I wouldn't do it this way, Lord, even though I don't understand or even though this is out of my comfort zone, nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. That's the real question. It's not, what is a circumstance like, you know, how you know, different it is from I would normally do it. It comes down to, am I willing to say, in spite of all that, nevertheless, Lord, because you tell me, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be obedient to it. Because that's what God wants. He wants our trust. He wants our obedience. And one of the best ways we can demonstrate it to him is when we're placed in that circumstance or situation where it's out of our comfort zone, where it's out of the way that we normally do it. And he's saying, will you trust me here? Will you obey me here? Oh, I know you do it when it's easy. I know you do it when it's not out of your comfort zone. I know you do it when everything works real nice. But will you do it in this circumstance? Because I really want to stretch you, and I want that trust that you have in me to grow. So Peter responds by trusting and obeying Jesus. And notice what happens in verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their their net was breaking So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. 
Notice here that when Peter is obedient to what Jesus told him to do, he goes fishing at the wrong time, at the wrong depth of water, when he'd already cleaned up his nets and he probably didn't want to go out anymore. He gets out there. He already toiled all night long, caught nothing, but he's obedient to Jesus, and all of a sudden the nets are full, so full that they can't even bring them in. They have to call the other boat over, and they fill both boats so full of fish that the boats start to sink, which had been something that would have been not the norm for them. Peter's trust and obedience brought a huge blessing from Jesus, and I think this is a great lesson for us. There are so many wonderful blessings that come when we're just willing to trust and obey what Jesus tells us to do. But I think you should also note that Peter worked all nights in his own ability. And what he thought he knew, I'm a fisherman, I know how to do this. He worked all night in his own ability, and what was the result? He caught nothing. It was only when he was led by Jesus and obedient to Jesus that he saw these amazing results. You know, this is a lesson that Jesus seeks to teach Peter. We're going to see it through the Gospel of Luke over and over again. Jesus wants Peter to understand, Peter, in your own ability, you can't do it. In your own ability, you can't accomplish it. You have to trust in me. You have to rely on me if you want to be able to accomplish what I'm giving you to accomplish. And so often through the life of Peter in the Gospels, we see Peter trying to rely on his own strength all the way to the last night that Peter's there with Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Even if all these other disciples deny you, I will never deny you because I'm the man. I'm strong. I know that I would never do this. Peter thought so highly of himself and his abilities he did not think he would ever do this and we know only a few hours later he denies Jesus three times Jesus knew Peter in yourself you're weak it's only through my strength that you rely upon that you're ever going to be able to accomplish anything you know one passage of scripture that's always been very difficult for me to fully grasp is John 15 5 He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know, I've read that verse so many times, and there were so many times in my ministry life where I just honestly didn't believe it. No, Lord, there's things I can do without you. I mean, look at my abilities. I can accomplish this, this, and this. And each time I sought to do that in my own strength and my own uh, abilities, God always let me fail miserably. He just wanted to remind me, like he does with Peter so often through Peter's life, go ahead and try. See what happens. When you try in your own strength, when you don't rely on me, because this is so true, without me you can do absolutely nothing for the kingdom of God. We have to rely upon Him. We can work hard for a long time with no results. But when Jesus directs our work, when we trust in Him, that's when things change. Now the reality is that Jesus is always directing us, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we following Him? He's always directing, always wanting to lead, but are we willing to say, all right, I'm going to follow your guidance. I'm going to follow your leading. I'm willing to trust and obey you. What we see here with Peter shows us that one of the worst excuses that you can give to God is, you know what, I failed in the past. Peter just failed all night long and didn't catch anything. Just, Lord, trust me, I'm a good fisherman, but last night I had a horrible day. I totally failed. You don't want me going out there. You don't want me trying to do this. I'm not the man for the job. And I already noted, Peter denied Jesus three times. That's how we kind of you know, almost end the gospel. That Jesus restores him in the book of Acts. He's one of the most used men of God throughout the start of the early church. He's the first one to preach the gospel. 3,000 people get saved. Here's a man who could definitely say, you failed, you'll never be used again. You deny Jesus three times. Don't ever think that God can use you. 
Well, that's not true. Peter failed absolutely miserably, but God restored him and God was able to use him in a very powerful way. And I think that's a great encouragement to us of not letting our past failures keep us from what God wants to do now and in the future. As he tells us to be obedient, that we would trust him and not use that as an excuse. Verse 8 says this, When Simon Peter saw it, that means all the fish that filled those nets, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. You know, I think it's real interesting here. It's this point in time that Peter sees Jesus in a whole new light. And this isn't the first time that Peter has encountered something miraculous that Jesus has done. Remember, he was there in Capernaum when Jesus was preaching. He was there in Capernaum when Jesus you know, cast the demon out of that man. He was there in Capernaum all night long when people brought the sick to Jesus and he healed all of them. Peter experienced that and he even experienced something more personal. Peter had his mother-in-law sick and Jesus came over and heals his mother-in-law. And so Jesus has seen, or Peter has seen Jesus do all these miracles But I think all of a sudden, Jesus hit Peter's territory. Here's the fisherman. And all of a sudden, Jesus does something miraculous with fish, with something that Peter would have felt like, man, this really hit home. And of all the things that he's seen Jesus do, notice now, at this point in time, his response is different than it's ever been before. He responds in humility. He responds in honesty. He said, we're told that he falls down on his knees and says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am. Am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter was so stirred by what had taken place that he recognized only the creator of the fish could have done this miracle this way. He realized at that moment he was in the presence not of the greatest prophet, not of the greatest teacher, not of the remarkable miracle worker. He realized, I am in the presence of God. And he falls on his knees and he says, Depart from me because I am. I'm a sinful man. You know, I think this is the reality when someone is brought consciously into the presence of God. It helps them to recognize their own sinfulness, their own weakness. Anytime you see people throughout Scripture who has, uh, if they're having a vision of God or anything of that nature, they're always dropping on their knees in fear because there's this recognition of how wretched I am to how holy and righteous God is. When you have an encounter with Jesus and see Him for who He really is, it causes you to see yourself for who you really are. You're a sinner in need of salvation. You know, so often we want to convince ourselves we're doing so much better than we are. We're, so, we're good people and all this stuff. But when we have an encounter with Jesus, we see Him for who He is, and all of a sudden it reveals what we really are. We are sinners in need of salvation. And He is the one who can bring that. So Peter responds with brokenness, with Humility, and he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And notice Jesus doesn't get out and say, yeah, you're right, you're a sinful man, get away from me, I don't ever want to see you again, Peter. The thing I love about Jesus is that he's always near broken-hearted sinners. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. When we come to Jesus in brokenness and repentance, He doesn't say, get away from me, you sinful person. When we come to Jesus in brokenness, He says, you know what, I'm here for you. I want to save you. I want to forgive you. 
Notice he tells Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. You used to catch fish, Peter, but I'm giving you a new calling, a new ministry. Now you're going to be a fisher of men, not a fisher of fish. It's interesting here, the Greek word translated catch means to take, capture, or catch. And this is a new thing that that Jesus was giving to Peter. You're now going to be a catcher of men for me. Now, I think it's interesting that there's only two times that this Greek word is used in the New Testament. Once here, and the other time it's used is in 2 Timothy 2, 26. We're told that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This phrase translated taken captive is the same Greek word that's translated catch in Luke. It's the only time that Greek word's used. Now, I think it's interesting. Hey, Peter, you're going to now be one who catches men for me. But we need to recognize we're not the only ones out there catching people. Because ultimately you might say, well, I'm not called in the full-time ministry. Well, that might be true. But we're all called to be fishers of men. We're all called to share the gospel with people. We're all called to share our faith. And ultimately, Peter's given this calling. And I think it's important to recognize that we're not the only ones trying to catch people. Satan is trying to catch people and destroy their lives. And Jesus has called us, his church, to be the ones that are his ambassadors that go out to seek to catch people for him. The devil's never taken a vacation. He's always trying to catch people and destroy their lives. And we're the ones with the good news of what Jesus has done. And it's our responsibility to be out there sharing that good news so that people can come to know him. So Peter's now given this new ministry of catching people. And notice how he responds in verse 11 and how the other James and John respond as well. When they had brought their boats to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Jesus now is saying, all right, Peter, James, John, I want to give you a new calling, a new ministry. You're going to be no longer fisher of fish. You're going to be fisher of men for me. And notice their response. They could have said, hey, Jesus, you know, we got a business going on here. We make good money here. We got our family here. We got all these things. What they do is they forsake all and they follow him. They forsook everything. Nothing was more important to them than following Jesus. There was nothing they weren't willing to give up to follow Jesus. And that's such a wonderful example to us. Here are these guys who say, you know what, I'm willing to give up career. I'm willing to give up whatever it is to follow you, Jesus. There's nothing that's going to stop me from following you and doing what you've called me to do. And that's what Jesus wants from all of us. When he calls us, he wants that response of obedience and commitment to say, I'm willing to give up all for you, that you are most important, that you are the number one priority, that nothing else is going to stop me, hinder me, keep me from following you. You know, when God called me that plant the church in Scotland, I recognized there was a lot of things I was going to have to forsake. You know, I had already been in Europe for two years. I was looking forward to getting back to California, looking forward to getting back to the nice weather, looking forward to getting back to family, back to friends, back to a lot of the comforts of things that I knew. And I knew following God's calling meant I'm not going back there. I'm going to a new culture. I'm leaving family. I'm leaving friends. I'm leaving the large church opportunities that I had. There was a lot of different things that I ultimately say I have to forsake those to follow the call of God for my life. And I don't have any regrets. And he's just continued. He finally directed me here. And I look at what God has done. And I'm so blessed just to say, hey, when you follow him, it's the best thing that you can do. Being completely obedient to God is what he wants. He wants us to forsake everything else for him. 
God is always calling us to do big things, to do little things. The response He's looking for is trust and obedience. Don't let fear, don't let the fact that you might do it differently, don't let the fact that it's out of your comfort zone or the circumstances don't seem right, don't let any of those keep you from obeying God and following His calling. Jesus encountered Peter. He asked Peter to trust Him. And Peter did. And what a great difference it made in Peter's life. Not only did Peter get this huge catch of fish, but he got a whole new ministry, a whole new calling. You're no longer Peter the fisherman. You're now Peter the catcher of men for Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first encounter we see. Now we have the second encounter. Peter is now going to, or sorry, Jesus is going to encounter another man with a very different situation, a very different circumstance. Verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So Jesus was in Gennesaret with Peter, James, and John. All this took place there. And now Luke just tells us Jesus was in a certain city. He doesn't give us a specific city because really that's not that important. What is important is the man in that city that Jesus encountered, a man that we're told is full of leprosy. Now, I'm pretty confident that none of us have come across someone who has a leper, because here in America, we don't really have anybody who deals with leprosy. Uh, there still are places in the world that people do uh, get leprosy. But in Jesus' day, this was a common disease and one of the most feared diseases for very good reason. Leprosy starts below the surface of the skin, and then it spreads throughout the body. Uh, eventually, the effects of the disease are clearly seen on these tumor-like swellings that start coming all over your skin, especially all over your face. Uh, the person's skin then turns white. Uh, their flesh begins to uh, visibly deteriorate and rot, and that rotting causes this really horrible stench to come out. And then parts of the body literally start to rot away, and you see fingers and toes start coming off, and then ultimately towards the latter stages, all you know, full limbs start to fall off. And uh, if that wasn't bad enough, Leprosy attacks the nervous system. So you stop feeling the pain that protects you. So they could put their hand on something extremely hot. They wouldn't even know it and get a horrible burn because of it. Uh, and then that made them even more you know, grotesque to look at. Uh, and leprosy was extremely contagious. So if you touched a leper, then you would get it. And because of that, it was a law that if you had leprosy and you came into an area where there were any other people, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean. Now imagine how the people around you are going to respond. They know when you're shouting out unclean, you are a contagious leper. No one wants to get leprosy. So they didn't all run to you and give you hugs. They didn't run to you and get near you. Everyone ran away from you. It was a very sad life. So the disease not only was horrible physically, it was also horrible emotionally because no one wanted to be around you. Once you got leprosy, no one hugged you again. No one was near you. No one touched you. Everyone just ran from you, stayed away from you. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that lepers were treated worse than rabid dogs. People would often throw stones at them, throw other things at them to keep them far away because everyone was scared. You get near me, I might catch this horrible disease that you have. But notice also that Luke tells us this man not just had leprosy, but that he was full of leprosy, which means that he was at the latter stage of his leprosy. His whole body would have had leprosy, and that's the worst stage of all, where toes and fingers probably have already started falling off, and maybe even perhaps some of his limbs would have been falling off. It often took about five years for someone to become full of leprosy. And once that happened, you wouldn't have much time before you died. 
So here's a man for many years has been a, living a lonely, detestable existence. And he knows he's out the end of his life. He's most likely going to die. Probably hasn't had contact with any person, maybe other than maybe a fellow leper, for many, many years. I think another interesting thing about leprosy is that in the Bible it's a picture of sin. I think it's a great description of sin because sin like leprosy starts small but then it begins to spread and affect the entire body until ultimately it defiles you it destroys you sin also like leprosy it desensitizes a person the longer you continue in a particular sin the more you lose your sensitivity to it I'm sure you've experienced, I know I have. I remember early on when I first got into high school, I started smoking marijuana, and I felt this great conviction. I knew it was wrong, yet every party I went to, the more I did it, that conviction was just less and less and less to the point when I just partied and did all the things that I did. The conviction was almost gone. It started real strong, but when you continue in those things and you just keep doing it, it's amazing how that sin desensitizes you from that reality I think it's also important that we recognize this parallel between sin and leprosy as we look at how Jesus deals with this man. So we're told that when this leper saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored Jesus saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I think it's great that this leper recognized this reality about Jesus. Jesus, I know that you're able to cleanse me. I know that you're able to deal with this leprosy that I have. Now understand, leprosy was incurable. There was nothing that they had at that time to cure this. So he's coming to Jesus recognizing, I know you can do the miraculous. I've heard about you. I heard how you heal people. And I'm convinced that you can cleanse me if you're willing. But notice he just didn't know that he was willing to come to Jesus and implore him, come to Jesus and ask him. Because we can you know, study the Bible and we can go, oh yes, I know Jesus can do this, or I know Jesus can touch my life here. But ultimately what he wants is, are we willing to come to him with that? Don't just know it intellectually, but respond by saying, Jesus, I know this and I'm going to actually do something about it. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to ask you to meet the need that I have. This leper did the right thing. Despite how hideous he might have looked, despite how embarrassed he might have been, despite the fact that when he came near Jesus, people probably ran and spread the other way as he had a shout unclean, despite all the things that would have made him think, you know what, I'm just going to steer clear of this. He comes to Jesus. He asks Jesus to heal him. And we're told in verse 13, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. I love this. You know, you see Jesus healing people in all sorts of different ways. But notice the first thing that Jesus says. Before he cleanses this man, notice what he does. He just reaches out and he touches him. You think, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is nobody touches this guy. He's a leper. Everybody steered clear of him probably for the last five years. He probably hasn't been touched in such a long time. And here are the first contact from a person before he's cleansed, while he's still unclean. Jesus comes and reaches his hand out and touches this man. And how that must have been for him. Imagine how he must have felt. So many years, so detestable, so disgusting, so many people shouting and screaming probably horrible things about him and to him. And now he comes to Jesus. He wants cleansing, but right before it, Jesus touches him. And then he heals him. You know, I think it's interesting. The man's leprosy didn't scare Jesus off like it did everyone else. It brought Jesus near. That need brought Jesus near to him because Jesus is there to meet those needs. As I already mentioned, in Jesus' time, leprosy was incurable by man, so the only way that this man could be cleansed was by coming to Jesus for that cleansing. But I think it's important to realize as well, sin is also incurable by man. 
And the only way that our sin can be cleansed is if we come to Jesus. There's no other way. There's nothing else that we can do. If we want to have our sin dealt with, the Bible's very clear. There's only one way for that to take place, and that is to come to Jesus, the one who paid for our sin on the cross for cleansing. What Jesus did for this leper is exactly what he does for those of us who have sin in our life. We come to him in our humility, and we recognize we have an issue. We ask for him to cleanse us. We ask for him to forgive us, and Jesus loves us enough to do it. He doesn't keep his distance. I think it's interesting that so many people fall for the lie that you know if we come to Jesus with our sin, he's going to be so disgusted with what we've done in our past. He's going to be so disgusted with all the things that we've done that he's going to run from us. He's going to want nothing to do with us. I can't come to him. If you knew what I did, you'd understand why I could never come to Jesus. If Jesus knew my sin, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. He would reject me. And that's a lie from the enemy. He doesn't want you to come. And I'm sure that leper probably thought the same thing. Oh man, if I go to Jesus, I mean everybody rejects me. He's not going to accept me. And yet we see here Jesus with this leper touching him, healing him, cleansing him. And the same thing with us. If we come to Jesus with our sin, we don't repel him. He paid the price for our sin. He desires that we would come to him for that because he wants to cleanse us. He wants to forgive us. One of the greatest verses in Scripture, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. He's always faithful. I love that. It's not, well, sometimes if you sin, He might forgive you. No, He's always faithful when you sin, when you come to Him, that He will forgive you for the things that you've done and He will cleanse you from all the unrighteousness that it's brought to you. Let's see what happens next, verses 14 through 16. And He charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. After Jesus heals this man with leprosy, he tells him, hey, don't tell anyone. Jesus did this a lot. You know, he didn't want the fame to grow uh, you know, like most people would want. He said, you know what, just keep it to yourself. It did grow anyway. But he says, you know what, there's a group I do want you to tell. I want you to go to the priest, and I want to make an offering for the cleansing as a testimony to them as Moses had commanded. Back in Leviticus chapter 14, if God ever healed a leper, noticing that you know, it could never be done by you know, some kind of you know, doctor or anything, if God ever supernaturally healed a leper, that person was to go to the priest and offer sacrifices to God because of what he did. And so Jesus is saying, go do that. Well, Leviticus chapter 14 says, I want you to go to the priest. I want you to tell them, hey, I had leprosy. Now I've been cleansed by God. And notice why. Because it's a testimony to them. You know, Jesus did a lot of things for the religious leaders to show who he was. He loved them just as much as anyone else. They're the ones who ultimately reject him. They're the ones who ultimately want to crucify him. But even starting now, he does things to show them, hey, look at who I am. Only God can heal a leper. I'm sending this leper to you so that you can see who I am. Jesus wanted them, just like everyone else, to recognize that truth. Now, the report of what Jesus did spread And great multitudes came together to hear him, to be healed by him. But just like with Capernaum, we see this huge crowd come and Jesus heals them. And then right after that, just like with Capernaum, once again, Jesus gets alone by himself and he prays. Another pattern we looked at last week. How is it that Jesus continued to do these huge days full of lots of ministry with all these difficulties? Because he regularly got away by himself with the Father. Can the worship team come on up? 
In these verses, Jesus encountered two men, Peter and a man with leprosy. And with both these men, Jesus asked them to trust him in the situation that they were dealing with. And because they put their trust in Jesus, it made a great difference in their life. Great difference being a really big understatement. He blessed Peter and gave him a new calling to be fishers of men for Jesus. And he cleansed this man of leprosy and made him whole. You know, if you want Jesus to make a great difference in the situations that you're dealing with, trust him. That's the example that we see here with these people. They were willing to trust him. Who knows what's going to happen if they were to if they, come to Peter, come to this leper, and they weren't willing to trust Jesus. They would have missed out on what he would do. And so if you're in a place where you need Jesus to move, where you need Jesus to help you with the circumstances you're in, trust him. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so grateful that you love us in spite of our sin, that you, like you did with the leper, are willing to come and you're willing to cleanse, that you're willing to touch, that you're willing to be there for us even when we have let you down, even when we've sinned in horrible ways, that you've dealt with that sin on the cross and that you want to forgive and that you want to cleanse. We're grateful, Lord, that you, like with Peter, give callings to all of us. You ask us to step out of our comfort zones. You ask us to do things that maybe don't seem to make quite all the sense that we would like, but yet I pray that you would help myself and all of us here to be like Peter was, willing to say, nevertheless, because you tell me, I'll do it. I don't need to know everything. I don't need it to all make sense. I don't need the circumstances to be perfect, Lord. All I need is that you tell me, and that's good enough. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to be obedient because I know that it's a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us to to just fully obey you with everything, especially when it doesn't seem like the circumstances and everything else are, are right. So I just pray that you would help us, Lord, if we're struggling with that, struggling with that willingness to trust you, that you would help us grow in that. If there's sins in our life that have kept us from you, I pray that you would just remind us that you're the God who wants to forgive, who wants to bring healing, and that we would just come to you, you would do that. We're just grateful for you. We're grateful for your love. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.